Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast, where in this episode we meet veteran animator Paul Dreesen. And we're back again, Squiggly Animation Podcast, this is Ben Mitchell, joined by Steve Henderson. Hello Steve. Hello Ben, how are you? Very good. And yourself? Have you uh, have you caught them all yet? Have I caught them all yet? I'm, I can't remember how many I've caught, but I've caught quite a few. We're, we're talking about, uh, obviously, Pokemon Go, I bet. Have you downloaded it yet? N- no, I, the, it never really reached me, the Pokemon craze. It was just after, I think. Mm. I would have. If it had been anything else or at a different time, absolutely I would have. Um, but I'd like this thing, given how much everyone's been so entrenched in just wafting misery and awfulness <laughs> and bad news over each other the last few months, that there's finally something that people are in a good mood about, gets them out of the house, and that's great. So It's nice. It's also nice to see uh, almost the beginning, I would say, of um, augmented reality kind of being taken seriously. It's always nice when it latches onto something hugely successful. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, augmented reality was a bit crap. For quite a long time, <laughs> like there wasn't really much you could do with it, and I think that yeah, there's a lot more. I know that there was like a thing that came with my DS, like it had like a little bit of an augmented reality thing that where you'd look through the camera and they'd add like you know like space aliens and stuff that you can fire at. It's like this thing that came with it, and it's fun for about five minutes. Mm-hmm. But then you know, without a kind of long game, would you know you don't really spend that much time doing it. Uh, so yeah, I think there's a lot of cool potential with what they've done. And had it been like a Mario-based augmented reality game, of course I would have been all over it. So actually, from what I've seen, as far as what you do in this game, it would translate really well to like a Ghostbusters thing. Mm. Like you walk around, you see a weird creature, you catch it in a trap. You know, just replace the peaky cheekies with the slimy wimies. Wow, that's, uh, I almost wish they were actually called that. That's quite cool. So I shouldn't have mentioned Ghostbusters. It's such a sore subject nowadays. What with so many childhoods being irrevocably ruined <sighs> by, by what was a completely non-objectionable film. Have you seen the film? Yeah, it's fine. Well, there you go. You know what's ruined my childhood? Ghostbusters fans. Yeah. They're the f***ing worst. Yeah. You know, did you see it? I've not seen it yet, no, but I've been... I've, all I've seen of it is the fury that's been directed at that poor actress um, and just the, the worst type of racism and just... Uh, I mean, how can they call themselves fans of anything? They're just vicious, awful people. Yeah. I don't understand that someone could get so incensed over something so innocuous to sort of go down to that sort of level i mean i think that probably there's a when it comes to sort of trolling over twitter well there's always i think some people just do that as a sort of weird bizarre hobby like like kids frying ants on the sidewalk because mm. an ant can't fight back with any degree of effectiveness and neither can anyone no matter how famous they are or how well known or liked they are if you're just firing unpleasant, ugly things that can't be regulated under this veil of sort of cowardly anonymity. Some people, maybe that's a sort of strangely gratifying hobby. <laughs> or practice. Like, I can't think of any other reason why they do. Or, like, they're genuinely filled with hate because they feel like this work of art has been desecrated. But I can't say that I use social media, especially Twitter, with any kind of degree of... Um sincerity as as if it's you know me and from the heart and stuff it's just a platform to have a laugh really or just to sort of try out a few jokes and complain at bus companies but if people are, are putting the heart and soul into it and so invested in it and then somebody comes along and trolls them then yeah i can see where that's going to hurt the actress in question she wasn't she was good in the movie it was fine but the writing wasn't very great for her character i have mm. to say like she did as much as she could with it, but certainly, I think also we talked about the trailer a little while ago, and I think that maybe the trailer sort of missold the movie a little bit as far as what kind of a film it was. But yeah, I don't know. I I, I felt that of all the things to kind of latch on to, that's probably the easiest and the laziest. 
Yeah. And I kind of think when it's easy and like, like Pokemon Go, for example, that's one of the things that it's so easy to make fun of something like that, that making fun of it isn't <laughs> worth anyone's time and energy. Yeah. And there's no good material out of it. It's just grumpy people saying, God, why don't these dorks get a life? And then they go back to their Facebook or their Candy Crush or whatever it is that they do. Well, we, we, sort of equivalent. we went to the, uh, we went to the park, me and my, uh, my other half. Which is which is something that couples haven't done since the nineteen twenties, and now Pokemon Go has come along. <laughs> People go around the park as a couple and you know catch Pokemon and all this kind of stuff, and it's great because people will come up to you like wearing hoods and or come up on bikes, and you and it's a little bit intimidating, and then they'll say, "Are you Team Mystic or Team Valor?" And you're like, "All oh, right," and then you go away and and go next to a swing, and you're pretending that it's a gym and it's good fun and everything. So we loved it, you know, and everyone was coming up for dead friendly, dead, you know, happy and all that kind of stuff. But there was a couple of chavs in the park the other night. We were sort of like just just walking down on our, on our phones, and um, they started kind of going, "Ah, we got a Pikachu! Ah, we got a Pikachu!" And we were like, "Well, yes, I have." <laughs> <laughs> I've also got a mortgage and a pension plan, and you know, what, what 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 do you have for me? You know, what, is that it? Are you just going to turn around and and just point out a thing that's happening? Is that is that the is that the height of it? What you've got to deliver? Those damn bullies! You know, bullies, Ben. I've been bullied. The uh, now, if you say that you're team Mystic, but they're on the other team, are you then in trouble? Do they then start a fight? Uh, yeah, well, you have to really. I mean. If anyone comes to me and tells me they're Team Valor, then oh, mortal enemies, Ben. You've, you've no idea. Brick to the skull. Exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. Swift. So ultimately, you know, whatever people kind of get out of deriding easy targets, I just don't particularly understand what that impulse is. I do have that sort of vague memory of a certain appealing superiority you get out of it that I'm trying to sort of dig out from, like, my memory banks of being four you know like the the absolute like as far back as your memory goes yeah the way social hierarchies are just kind of forming the way people behave and the way people sort of dominate and form allegiances and all that kind of thing this the feral schoolyard behavior that we all sort of had when we were kids Mm. establishing things early on and one of the easiest ways to kind of assert sort of dominance was to just call everyone else stupid and then they'd be afraid to challenge that. So the bullies were always just the ones who would just needlessly deride something. But then the they were just as easy to extinguish, which was you just deride them back mm. and you do it like a little bit more aggressively, but only sort of focused on them. And then they'd stop. And weirdly, it's, it's, it's very, very rare, but occasionally you do brush up against that in adulthood, like in business and stuff like that. It's why I've, I'm glad I never ended up working in sales mm. or like any anything where I think you have to kind of recreate that kind of schoolyard social structure. It's cutthroat. It really is. I, I used to work in a in a a place uh, that sells computers or sells insurance, like dressed up as selling a computer. You have to employ those tactics. You're right. It's cruel and it's wrong. And you know I couldn't get out of that place quick enough. You ever see a uh, Glengarry Glen Ross? No. Oh, it's it's good. It has it's a old Pacino film mm. and uh, Jack Lemmon and Kevin Spacey are in it. Jack Lemmon's character is basically Gil in The Simpsons. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Like so, it's it's kind of if you watch it, you'll there's a whole bunch of Simpsons stuff you'll get. That's a good reason to watch a lot of classic films. Yeah. yeah. These days, but some of the, there's an amazing sort of like scene with Al Pacino kind of giving Kevin Spacey a dressing down and just the bullheaded alpha dog machismo of these guys who are really just sort of, you know, barely holding it together. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's the kind of thing where some people, I think, just fall into it. I just like making cartoons and keeping my head down. <laughs> That's basically, it's worked for me so far. Good stuff. Just sort of going back to the new Ghostbusters to segue into something I know you want to talk about. I've been feeling really sort of disillusioned at the moment Going back to a couple of conversations we had a few podcasts ago, there was an element also of Ghostbusters where there's a character in it who, I think anyone who would really call themselves like a fan of the original, this character is spiritually like a perfect fit for the Ghostbusters universe, right? Mm. And I think everyone I've talked to is absolutely besotted with the character and the way it was played. It's wonderful. And I guess it's, I hadn't really picked up on this, but I guess it's, there's a sort of implication that she's gay. Uh, so 
the director was interviewed about. So I was, oh, was it just for clarification, is that character meant to be gay? And there was this weird sort of coyness. It's that sort of deflective, slightly cowardly, like, you know, well, why explicitly state it? You know, it's it's whatever the audience wants it to be. And then at one point he, he very sort of clearly said, I, I can't say because Sony won't let me. Oh, wow. So then all of all of the masquerade of it being open to interpretation goes out the window. And that put me in mind of that Finding Dory thing we were talking about a little while ago. Yeah. Where And I, I saw a thing with Andrew Stanton, and there was a, it was a similarly coy deflection when someone brought it up with him. It's this weird sort of like non-committal progression I keep seeing. If you leave it ambiguous, then it's not being progressive. Yeah. And I find that a little sort of like disheartening. It's, and I've come to realize just how naive I've been, child of the 80s and 90s, a sort of naivety of like heteronormative white privilege that comes from a childhood where, you know, the television shows that we, we would watch, stuff like The Cosby Show and The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, they instill this notion of not just equality, but affluence. And then you have stuff like, you know, Roseanne that would show white families that were lower working class and struggling with, you know, their finances or social issues or their privilege, even in that situation. And this was stuff that was happening 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I guess I kind of grew up, stopped paying attention and realized, oh, there wasn't any actual progress that happened. Like people still look down their noses at, you know, certain social groups and we can't just honestly depict them in media and in animation, you know, as... as Like, this is the thing. Ghostbusters isn't even a full-on cartoon. Like, the animation is in it, but it's, like, probably my least favorite part of it. Yeah. It's a live-action movie. Like, why now, in a live-action movie, would there be any ambiguity, whether or not a character is gay or straight or whatever, purposefully? Like, purposeful ambiguity. Like, because Kristen Wiig is very clearly straight because a recurring joke with her character is she's fawning over this, like, very, you know, hunky Thor, basically. Right. Even though he's a complete dipshit. And it's not a particularly feminist uh, recurring joke, which sort of flies in the face of people saying that this film with some feminist agenda. It's actually a pretty... It's a little more honest and self-effacing. Mm-hmm. Why is it sort of, like, so okay to be, like, that direct about, like, her sexual proclivities and then like make this point of leaving it up in the air for another character and why if we're going to see like a, a couple or a family in frozen like that scene with you know you know hello family yeah if you look at that shot it's actually a very vague shot it's not clearly a gay couple there's like it's a man and a woman in the sauna the, the moment in the sauna when yeah 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 uh, but a lot of people kind of like, I think they saw that and they kind of interpreted it in a much more hopeful, optimistic way. You know, if you saw the, the couple in Finding Dory, if you saw the trailer, then you've seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's 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 all they were in the film, like, unless I'm misremembering something. No, no, they basically just turned around and saw Hank as a baby and that was it, basically. Yeah, They could be sisters, they could be two friends, they could be two mothers. They could be two strangers. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Maybe to a degree, it's like, well, if an audience sees that and they make an interpretation, does the director have to be answerable to that? But in that situation, why does the director then have to be so, like, coy and deflective? Yeah. The reason all this kind of bubbled up is uh, today the leading story, uh, is Sunday we're recording this, today the leading story on Cartoon Brew is that uh, Rebecca Sugar came out at Comic-Con, mm-hmm. which is probably the least surprising coming out of the closet since Dale Winton. <laughs> the surprise in that was that it wasn't just knowledge, but in the same time, it's like, well, it's none of my f-ing business. But the show is, of course, hugely celebrated for being a, in a metaphorical sense, certainly celebratory of LGBT themes. I've mm-hmm. really not seen enough of it to appreciate what it is that people have fully fallen in love with about this show. I suspect that I probably wouldn't be able to. I think the, like, the subtext, I guess, would be probably a little lost on me. But I think the idea is fantastic. But the surprise in the article that Amid wrote was that this, I guess, hasn't ever happened before. Mm. But of course, we've all known... Well, historically, through animation, I mean, look at Norman McLaren, people like that. There's, there's, there's always, it's always been there, hasn't it? But I suppose we're talking about the mainstream television universe here. So I guess the, the depressing thing that, you know, it should be a positive... I appreciate why it's being presented as a positive, but I'll go back to the point I made a few episodes back when we were talking about the Finding Dory 
couple slash not couple is why in this day and age you know are we are we that far behind <laughs> when it comes to like media yeah. that that's something that would be revelatory and progressive the progression should have happened so long ago mm-hmm and it's already so ingrained in society. It's such a, yeah. uh, particularly for us, um, it's not something that if somebody came up to me and said, I'm X, Y, Z, I'd be like, well, why are you telling me? I don't care. If you're happy, then that's that's all that matters at the end of the day. Something a little more encouraging. There's a, I did see there was a thing. There's a new Nickelodeon show. One kid happens to have two dads. You know, there's no like, oh, are they his dads? Or is it his dad and his roommate? Or, you know, it's, no, it's his two dads. Mm-hmm. Kids aren't going to be thrown by that. Kids will probably know a kid that has two dads or two mums at this point. The TV show that you're talking about is uh, The Loud House. Okay. In a way, I, I have no idea if it's a good show or whatever, but I do find that if something's going to be celebrated for doing something, at least they're actually doing it, mm. rather than doing it under the, the cloak of vagary. Then that's, that's terrible, the fact that Sony aren't explicitly turning around and saying, well, yeah, she's gay, or, yeah, the writers made her gay, or, or well, she's she's whatever you want her to be. Not giving a straight answer, because I think that was the popular phrase is, if you can't, if you don't see it, you can't be it. Right. And there are people that are probably in the closet thinking that it's not safe to come out, or that society is still not ready for them. And they'll lead, they'll lead miserable lives because of that, part of their personality which they think won't be accepted yeah and that's such a terrible thing no exactly it's stating the bloody obvious here sorry well it, uh, yes it is obvious and yet why is it still a thing if it's so obvious yeah. to you and me and we're not like particularly enlightened people <laughs> what possible issue is there still by the way the rebecca sugar is the woman who created steven universe who which is this mm-hmm. very big show at the moment if you don't know who we're talking about or what the show is, you go on to Squiggly. We have an interview with her from around the time the show was just sort of starting. And, uh, you know, we met her in Annecy, really nice woman. I think that the progression, more than anything, was that it was a um, the first time, I think, that uh, Cartoon Network had a woman at the helm of one of their properties, like one of their original mm-hmm. properties. Which, again, is a little bit like embarrassing that it took that long, but at the same time... It's a good thing. It's a good sign. I think the writing was on the wall that this was going to be a show that did things a little differently. And every fan, there's no like casual fan of this show, as far as I can tell. Yeah, you're in all you. Yeah. So yeah, that's on Squiggly. Uh, But elsewhere at Comic Con, uh, you had a little uh, look at all the goings on that's been happening this year. Uh, What sort of stuff uh, grabbed you by the short and curlies? It's been busy over there. There's been an awful lot of uh, excitement over at Comic Con. Obviously, um, it's like. Annecy, but for uh, the stuff that you're probably more likely to find on a shelf at Asda. So it's all Batman, it's all Simpsons, it's all, you know, uh, it's it's a little bit more mainstream, shall we say. Uh, the immediate thing that grabbed me, uh, and I absolutely adore, is this uh, clip that they've released from Rick and Morty, which has been put out there with no context. Uh, have you seen this? Uh, so is it like an animatic? It's an animatic of a scene where, I mean, for fans of the show, you know that pretty much anything is possible. And last year they released a clip of uh, Roy, the virtual reality game, uh, where uh, Rick and Morty go to an arcade. Uh, They put on this headset, it's called Roy, where you basically sit and and you live an entire life on this computer game. Mm -hmm. And there's this like five minute sequence of Morty just living this life of this guy called Roy. And, you know, he's a, he's a, is popular at high school and then he gets cancer and then he, you know, works in a, ca- in a carpet shop and then he falls over, breaks his neck and dies and Morty takes the helmet off and he's like, what? Where, where, where's my wife? What's happened? <laughs> you know, he doesn't realise what's, what's been going on. It's absolutely superb. And that was an animatic that they released last year. Everyone loved it. It was one of the great things of season two. And this clip from uh, that they've released from season three is just an absolute treat. If you were like an animator and you were given a shot from this animatic, it would make your day. It would, wouldn't it? It would make your month whoever gets that gig. <laughs> it's made my month watching it. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. It's such a well done animatic. And the show itself is is always, you know, visually, you know, exciting with the this, the way they design things and such. And this action sequence is just, you know, superb. Did you see the new Lego Batman trailer? I have not, but I uh, I expect I will enjoy it. 
Let you me, are in for a treat. Let me then. punch it up. Because I uh, yeah I really enjoyed what I've seen so far. Uh, Comic Con trailer. Computer, do you hear me? Hello, Master Bruce. I have just taken away your computer privileges. Gasp, sir! It's time. For Who's playing Alfred? Uh, that's uh, the guy who played Voldemort. Ray Fiennes, I think it is. Alright. That's why I know him. Sorry, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. The young orphan you adopted at the gala. I thought I was being sarcastic. Hello, secret camera. <laughs> what? It's the bat cave! Oh my gosh, 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 oh my gosh. Is Michael Sarah like Robin? Batman? Yeah. Whoa! You're darn right, whoa. Wait, does Batman live in Bruce Wayne's basement? No, Bruce Wayne lives in Batman's attic. Wow! Do I get a costume? Don't touch that. <laughs> The mariachi. I like that, that one. one is culturally insensitive. Night terror. What do we think of this? Glam bat. This one. Absolutely not. Wait, what's that one there? I love it. My only trouble <laughs> is man. pants are just a little tight. I got an idea. Rip! I can only look you in the eyes. Just ripped right off the pants. Are you ready to <laughs> oh, great. Batman and maybe learn a few life lessons along the way? I sure am, but Well, this absolutely, you know, it's, it's everything that that original lego movie had in terms of the the that sort of wonderful tactile approach to the cg yeah and everything sort of coming together it seems very funny so i'm 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 looking forward to this michael sarah i i don't think you can t actually tell it's him because his his voice actually changes <laughs> he actually sounds excited or, you know, it doesn't sound like him at all, does it? I didn't think it was possible for his voice to get higher. Yeah. Like, I remember, like, in that sort of first year of Arrested Development, sort of running, I wonder if this kid's going to stop being cute when he, when his voice drops. I guess he'd already gone through puberty at that point. He's just <laughs> one of those, like, guys who just has that eternal <laughs> flame of youth. Yeah. He went through a light puberty. It didn't quite hit him as hard as it hit us. Yeah, yeah. But a dusting of puberty. A <laughs> dusting. <laughs> uh but yeah what a great uh what a great pick for 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 robin yeah that's good there's so i mean the energy is so palpable isn't it it seems so exciting well i think that it's the kind of thing that, that when it's something that's an old 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 like idea you know something especially like batman's gonna be nearly a century now you kind of in a way it's it's, it's a much easier watch something that's a sort of tongue-in-cheek semi-parody of it than trying to make the version of Batman for 2016 you know, mm. for the modern audience and I, I do feel like Chris Nolan did a, a good job but I find those films actually don't improve much with reacquaintance yeah weirdly it's interesting seeing like because I when you play the Lego video games the approach to the animation is completely different yeah than what they do in the films and the films is much better. Like it's a, it probably wouldn't be that playable as a game because mm -hmm. it's very sort of stilted and like everything sort of being built up. But with the video games, everything is kind of like bendy and rigged. Like the Lego characters have like skeletons and stuff, rather than in the movie, it's basically very real life. They're just like poseable, and you can move the arms and move the head. That's about it. Yeah. So there's a lot more inventiveness with the uh, with the approach to the animation in the film. But it's kind of like if you can if you can find like an, an outlet to just channel properties through. Um, Lego have really hit this gold mine. They really have. Like, it's like those pop vinyl things. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, we just found a look, a basic design. Let's just color them all in and <laughs> call it this character, call it that character, give it a hat. You can buy like eight different versions of the Joker as a pop vinyl thing. Like they just like walls of them. And you know there'll be pop vinyl Lego Joker as well. <laughs> so the, the, even the franchises and the franchises, there'll all be a big mess of crossovers. It's going to be incredible. The most confusing one, and this was an actual thing, it made my head explode. It's like it was when it all gets too a bit too much, everything kind of like comes together like a big pile up on the freeway. Uh, do you remember that old meme? Uh, every time you masturbate, God kills a kitten. Yeah. And it's this kitten running away from those Japanese dolls with the angry mouths. Domo? Dome? What, what, I... it's, basically, it's a type of Japanese doll with an angry face, basically. Right. And you could get Domo Ghostbuster 
Slimer pop vinyl. Right. So it was like Slimer, but as a domo, but as a pop vinyl figurine. Firstly, who the f*** asked for that? (laughs) (laughs) And and who then sees it in the store and goes, finally, the combination we've all been yearning for. (laughs) I think that's when, when... If I knew that you liked those three separate things, and I was looking for a present for you, and it came across, I'd be like, well, there you go, problem solved. <laughs> that's, a, that's a present from a well-meaning uncle. <laughs> right there, that's what that is. I suppose it's, what's great about this is, is as you say, seeing Batman uh, you know, portrayed in such a way, such a, a fun, fresh uh, kind of way, not taking it serious. And if you look at what else is going on at Comic-Con, there's been some more Batman reveals, and one of them being The Killing Joke, um, based on the you know the graphic novel of the same name. Are, are you into graphic novels, Ben? Have you read The Killing Joke? I'm not so much into, like, Batman comics. Mm. So that I like Darkham Asylum yeah. more as a McKean fan. So no is the answer. Um, ah, right, okay. That rings a bell, certainly, is a big Batman thing. Yeah, uh, well, they've released a killing joke, and it's it's quite a short uh, graphic novel. Uh, it's it's considered one of the very best. It's got some very pivotal moments in you know for the careers of of, of Batgirl, Batman, and the Joker. And you know when it when it came out, it turned heads, and it's still talked about to this day. But it's been uh, translated into animation, and people were very excited for this. Uh, as you as you may have expected, not not least because um, the original uh, voices from the uh, Batman animated series were coming back, so you get Mark Hamill returning to do the Joker, Kevin Conroy coming back to do Batman, so everyone's naturally excited for it. They got even more excited when they found out that it was going to be R rated, so there's going to they're not really going to you know apply the brakes on this thing, and and then it's been released, and uh, Batman fans are quite annoyed because. Um, Batman has sex with Batgirl in it. Okay. And it's a little bit, it leads on a little bit too much at the beginning. And they've really taken the idea of translating a comic, making it an hour and a half. And they've effectively kind of ruined it in doing that process by adding extra things. Right. Which is a bit of a shame to see that that's the kind of the path have gone on. Whereas instead of making it an hour and a half, they could have made it 40 minutes and done a a, a more literal translation. But, uh, yeah, it's annoyed quite a few people. So do you reckon it's just to sort of fill up extra time that they... Yeah, yeah. yeah you've, you've got an hour and a half, you know, it's a Batman film, people are going to enjoy it because it's Batman. And then they just have him doing the things that people have just said no to from, from day one uh, when it comes to Batman. I remember when the new 52 came out, there was a, a, the first um, Catwoman issue and Batman and Catwoman had sex and people were really annoyed at that. And when... Um, all-star Batman came out. Batman had sex and people were really annoyed about Why that. does no one want Batman to have sex? Well, I think it's because he, he's so pent up and aggressive. There's got to be a reason for that. It's probably because <laughs> he's not getting laid. So <laughs> the idea of Batman getting laid is probably... I, I don't know. That's just a just me trying to be daft about it. But uh, yeah, people aren't happy because Batman gets his end away. One thing I did see was um, Tara Strong was at the Comic-Con. Oh, yeah. Uh, and she dressed up as Harley Quinn, and the internet meltdown that it ensued. <laughs> <laughs> just all these, like, geeks' heads just exploding. Yeah. It gets an interesting one, that. I think, do you, do you remember a few years ago when you were, uh, you probably remember this uh, more vividly than me, because she was promoting your book, uh, throat book. Everyone was dressed up as the Joker because of the Dark Knight. Yeah. And now, this year, when Suicide Squad comes out, everyone's going to be Harley Quinn. You can just see it coming. And, and and Jared Leto, Joker. Extra Batman news is that they've announced that there's going to be a Batman Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles animated crossover. Why not? Why not? It's exactly like the doll that you were talking about earlier on. The Domos, Ghostbusters. Well, this is the other thing that, that pissed me off about people getting annoyed that they would have the audacity to make a version of Ghostbusters with all women. I've seen Ghostbuster like comics and stuff in the soul. It's Ghostbusters, meet the X-Files. Ghostbusters meet the Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Like, they've already plumbed, like, depths of shittiness. So, really, this film is only a step up. Ghostbusters meet the Ghostbusters. Yeah. Oh, I bet they've done one where it's, like, the film Ghostbusters meet the cartoon Ghostbusters. They have. They actually have. Really? <laughs> yes. Oh, 
I was like half joking. You well have. The meet the real Ghostbusters, yeah. Well, there you go. Some some good positive animation stuff from the uh, from San Diego there. And not so positive as the case may be. Yeah. But uh, as as someone who who is perfectly okay with Batman going to bed with Batgirl or whatever, I I don't see any particular objection with that. But then uh, I didn't read the original book, so if you know they took the Lord of the Rings and had the hobbits all shagging each other, I'm sure people would have been annoyed then as well. So you could probably buy that or find it online. A Deviant Art account probably <laughs> is that covered. Ah, <laughs> oh, excellent. I've got some uh, some more news for you if you're interested. They're releasing Shrek Five. Anyway, so who have we got on this podcast for a guest, Ben? <laughs> this week's episode is Paul Dreesen, who I'm sure is a name that will be familiar to a fair few of you out there. Uh, he's a tremendously prolific Dutch filmmaker. He's an Oscar nominee, and uh, he's been at the old animation game for around, I guess, 50 years, just coming up to that. Got to start in the 60s. I think the first major thing he worked on, apart from some commercials, was The Yellow Submarine, of course, the very famous George Dunning film. And then since then, he started what has been a continuing relationship with the National Film Board of Canada. At the same time, he's also made films in his home country uh, in the Netherlands as well. He's sort of go back and forth. uh, And we chat a little bit about how each sort of circumstance differed in the interview. And he has a relatively new film that he released last year. He made it with the NFB and it's been doing the rounds. It's called Cat Meets Dog. And it will be screening next month at Hiroshima. Obviously a pretty major animation event. So I thought it'd be great to have him on the uh, on the old podcast. Did he work with your dad on Yellow Submarine? I asked my dad. He didn't remember him. Uh, my dad was a cell painter. Right. So I suspect not. My dad didn't really do any animation. He knew a few of the... An- he was going out with one of the animators. Hmm. So she probably worked with Paul. All right. What this new film sort of embraces as far as uh, devices that he's known for as a filmmaker, uh, a lot of playing about with the concept of time, a lot of simultaneous action happening, alternative realities, alternative outcomes, and the ways that they kind of interweave with each other. Very precise and very well done. A lot of uh, uh, discipline when it comes to plotting out the, uh, the sequence of events. Uh, it's like the screen's divided into four, two panels of which are two sort of realities for this cat and then on the other side it's two alternate realities for this dog and then how they all kind of might end up crossing paths it's it's a very hard one to describe it's it's basically like choose your own adventure but you can see it all happening in front of you yeah a little bit yeah he's done that a few times hasn't he with a few of his films the the way he displays them on screen uh, it's like a, it's like watching a moving comic in some respects, um, especially yeah. when you look at something like The End of the World in Four Seasons or, you know, his, his, his earlier films. Um, but yeah, this this was quite a good one. I enjoyed this one. I think of all the films he's done that use that kind of device, my personal favourite would be The Boy Who Saw the Iceberg, mm. which I'm pretty sure was an NFB one, and I think you'd like it, as would Squiggly's very own Silent Bob, Mr. Aaron Wood, because <laughs> uh, it's about the Titanic. Yeah. Which I recently found out is like the shared fascination that the two of you have. Yeah. It's... Him to the extent where Titanic is literally his favorite movie. Yeah, it's not my favorite movie, but, you know. It's... <laughs> that, I think, was probably the most powerful film of Paul's. Um, did you see that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. about the Titanic, Ben. What are you talking about? <laughs> Uh, since then, he's you know it also recently did a film with the NFB before this one uh, a few years ago called Oedipus, and that was really great because it has these like Canadian filmmaker character cameos, like characters from various other NFB films and Canadian shows and stuff. That was um, it's a little reminiscent of when Joanna Quinn did that Bradford Animation Festival branding a few years back, mm-hmm. and like sort of seeing her take on these very sort of famous uh, animation characters. Like done in her style. Yeah, I, I quite like that sort of thing. I think Chris Landreth did that a bit with Subconscious Password as well. Like I think he put like characters in the audience. Yeah, and Andreas Heikadi did it with uh, Love and Theft. Oh yeah, well yeah. It <laughs> mixed them with penises as well. So they also, if you're going to go through his filmography, you can buy DVDs. Quite a lot of the films are online officially. Um, he's done some great short form film work, like. Um, well, they're all short films in the sense, but uh, micro shorts. So like sort of weird, surreal ideas. The Killing of an Egg's a really nice one. 
wonderful little bizarre moments as one called Oh What a Night, which, um, you know, the characters sort of like fall apart and come back together again. These very odd approaches to how like how the laws of physics work. In a way, he was one of those artists that fully embraced that limitless potential of animation that when we see someone do that even now, we're like, ooh, that's nice to see. Yeah. But he was doing this 40 years ago. And also the earlier stuff, there's a pretty heavy George Dunning influence. I think if you watch like something like Cat's Cradle, there's a certainly spiritually, there's a kind of blue mean easy feel to it. Mm-hmm. So I, I like him a lot. I think uh, the new film's really interesting. Uh, I'm not sure when next it would be in the UK, but certainly I expect it would go online fairly soon. But yeah, like I say, you can go onto the NFB website and watch quite a few of his films that he did with them. Definitely worth checking out if you've not uh, if you're not familiar with his work. Definitely encourage people to do that. I think his work's instantly recognisable. I don't know whether it's because we're so involved with the animation industry, but when you think about his work, you would place him up there with the people who are, are always at animation festivals or are always are a constant uh, when it comes to uh, short uh, filmmakers. And if you don't recognise the name, I'm sure if you type in Paul Dreesen into Google mm-hmm. and images come up of his films, you'll be like, oh, that guy, of course. Yeah, I know exactly. Who he is. That's where I'm getting at. Uh, I'm looking forward to finding out what goes on in his mind, Ben. Well, yes, here is a a chat I had with Paul Dreesen a little while ago about his new film, Cat Meets Dog, and his path to animation. So I guess the the relationship with the NFB, it does go back over 40 years. I'm probably most familiar with the work from the NFB. Like uh, an old box, I say, would be sort of as far back as I would probably go. And at that point, how long had you been in Canada or did you move to do that film? Actually, I moved to Canada because of the National Film Board. Mm. I knew about it, heard about it. Um, I had just worked in London at the Yellow Submarine, George Dunning's uh, The Beatle Film. And George, of course, is was a Canadian. And he came from the Film Board. He was trained at the Film Board. And he talked about it. So I knew that for me, the future, if, if that were possible, I would try to get to the Film Board. Mm. And I tried a couple of years later, Yellow Supreme was like 67, 68. And I moved to Canada in, in early 70s, uh, worked through a contact at, from the Beatle film at uh, Potterton's Productions in Montreal in order just to get my trip paid because I was very poor. And then um, I walked into the film work with ideas and finally ended up not at the English animation, there are two productions at the film where it's the French production, the English production. And I started because my English was better than my French at the English animation department. But finally, it's the French animation who took me in. And I stayed there for many, many years, but as a freelancer. So I made films, went back to Holland in between, made a film there, subsidized by the Dutch government. Mm-hmm. And I traveled a lot between the two countries, actually. Is there a vast difference between the sort of two filmmaking circumstances from Canada to like from a creative or production standpoint? Well, as I said before, the uh, the film world has the environment, which is very stimulating. In Holland, I would be, I don't know, renting a room somewhere and living and work from home, which is, especially when you're young, it's fun. You know, I was, I remember I went to The Hague, close to the beach. Uh, it was a beautiful summer when I started working on, I think that film was David and the Killing of an Egg. Uh, it was kind of after my first few films at the film board, so I went back for a year. And it was lovely as an experience. And I'm used to work by myself. It was not a big problem. Except going back to the film board, it's fun again to be part of that group. But that's the difference, basically. It's all by yourself or, of course, you have friends and family and so on in Holland and in Canada was more the family of the film so going back to um, the Yellow Submarine did that have a sort of big effect on your approach and style and was it more just a case of like cutting your teeth in the animation world I had started out not too long before that and basically it's because George Dunning had come to Holland to the studio where I worked which was very small and there was, uh, there was an American, Jim Hiltz, who was in charge, and he knew George since a long time. And they worked on the Beatles series. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. They were terrible. They were ugly, but the songs were great, of course. And they were all um, very, very limited animation. They hardly moved, actually. 
but there were the songs of the Beatles, of course, in the mid-60s. And because of that, George came to Holland a couple of times to see the progress of, you know, the work they did. I didn't work on those series myself, but George liked my style. And he said, well, whenever you want, come to England. And when I, when the, the small studio collapsed, which it did in 66, 67, I remembered George had invited me and I went over and they just happened to start at the Yellow Submarine. It was just by chance. And he invited me in and I said, sure, we're doing a feature and it's about the Beatles and <laughs> why don't you stay? And I said, why not? And I started Yellow Submarine, not knowing what it was. Actually, they didn't have a script, they didn't have anything. They just knew Sergeant Peppers just came out and there was a big chaos. And there was some money, there was a million American dollars, I remember. And they had nine months to accomplish the the feat because the Beatles were popular, but so were many other groups. And all those groups might last, but usually not that long. So the film had to be made very quickly because it would only sell uh, if the Beatles would be popular. So the nine months was the deadline, I remember that. And they made it, they made it. In a lot of respects, I think it sort of, it represents the whole aesthetic of the Beatles in that time period in terms of how much it's referenced and, you know, that particular color palette and that style of animation. Psychedelic times. Mm -hmm. It was a lovely time. You know? yeah. I was just lucky to be born at the right time <laughs> and then up to the right place. I've been following a lot of recent NFB productions the last sort of five years or so with much more sort of concentration than, than before. And so I'm more sort of well-versed in the kind of more recent years of their output. And I'm sort of curious as to, as someone who's been involved with the NFB over a few decades, are there any ways in which you think the NFB has changed or adapted over the years? Uh, the techniques have changed, of course, quite a lot. Mm -hmm. In the old days, there was a lot of... The film would always experiment, you know, to try out something new. And because French is a minority in North America, of course... Most of those films, that's why I ended up there, were not based on language. They were based on expression and visuals. And that, for me, was the fun, of course. You could also, my French was not too good, my English was not great. And it was much more interesting for me to use visual imagery. So I had a great time, and by the time, I think it's, I worked at the French animation off and on, but for about 10 years. And then I went to Holland for a while. And then actually it's Marcy Page of the national of the English animation department who invited me back. She said, you have been, you know, away from the film world for quite a few years. Why don't you come back? And I presented the storyboard and all of a sudden, suddenly I was part of the English animation. Mm. And it's funny at the film world, those things that mix much more than in the old days. But they're still a little apart, at, at least at the same floor, and they talk to each other. Yeah. In the old days, they avoided each other. It's very strange. Oh, and uh, now they, of course, now they do. Also, technology makes it mixes it up, of course. So we share a lot. As you say, so much of your own work being so sort of visually driven over dialogue mm -hmm. that does kind of sidestep that element of needing to make two completely different versions for each film which i think is sometimes the case with what they do mm. and yeah certainly it is very much action oriented your work like very very fluid and very full and that particular design style that you have is is so identifiable like you're you're a filmmaker who you can see without sort of knowing oh that's paul Dreesen. Mm -hmm. was that always just the way you approached drawing or was it sort of consciously developed um, no, not consciously. When I was little, I started doing cartoons. I think I must have been five, six years old or something. I always did funny stories, but as drawn cartoons. And I always thought I was going to be a cartoonist, basically. And I, I tried. I didn't pursue it hard enough, so I didn't become a cartoonist. And I just happened to get into animation bit by chance again. But the style, if you look back, the style kind of developed from childish cartoony to what I do now. It's always been the same, except the animation itself. My style of animation used to be quite limited, like the Yellow Submarine is quite limited also. 
And in those days, uh, early commercials in the 60s, there were very limited animation, which came from the UPA. George Jenning actually was sent to Europe to uh, bring along the, the message of UPA, like not the full animated Disney style, but do something different. Yeah. And I grew up with that style, of course, which is a lot of fun. You know, it's simple and it goes fast and it's fun. It's only later over the years, maybe the last 10 years, that I really appreciated animation itself for its fullness, how far you can go, how much you can stretch, how it's more work, of course, but it's, it's a lot of fun to do it. Animation is not only so many drawings you have to do. For an animator, it's also the, the craft, you know, how, how can you play with it? How far can you go? And I would just go over and over again and try to go beyond that, what I did before. That's why my latest film, especially films like uh, Adipus, I'm not sure if you have seen that, mm -hmm. but Adipus, which is a backward film, but if you look at the animation frame by frame, it's very weird. You know, sometimes I leave out bodies or volumes or you see only the eyes and a line. Mm -hmm. It's very fluid, you know, it just keeps going. And although it goes backwards, it doesn't matter. I, f I animated it backwards, actually, because oh. so, but that was a choice. Animate forward and, and on the computer, of course, going in reverse. And I did that. But then all the anticipation movement, all the, the fun of what you can do with animation to introduce a movement would not work anymore because it's the other way around. So I animated like going forward, except I made people or the, the, the characters walk backwards and mm. tell the story backwards. But I think in general, that's the fun of that film. You know, you can see it's well animated mm. and there's something weird about it, but that's because the story is told backwards. Mm. It's another thing I particularly enjoy about Oedipus, all the sort of Canadian animation cameos, I suppose mm -hmm. you'd call yeah. them, that show up. It's and um, yeah. was that something that the original like artists were they in on, or was it like a surprise? Uh, I always had planned to be to have Adipus in that room, like mm -hmm. to get analyzed. Um, and then I just came up with all those characters, all those friends of mine, all Canadian, basically. Uh, yeah, they were all Canadian animators. And I thought uh, it might be fun, except we had to ask them. They all agreed. If they would lend that character to to me to do whatever I wanted to do with him, mm. but they're all different because the film is interesting. That every style and every film they make, they don't do series or the same thing. They do different things. So the characters are very different. But those characters I used are all um, misfits. They're all from crazy films, and mm. they they. Should be analyzed, you know, by mm. psychiatrists. So they're in that room. Like you mentioned about the animating it backwards and telling the story backwards, it does seem that a lot of your films sort of set an extra challenge in a sense of mm -hmm. um, experimenting with the use of time, um, the kind of split screen thing, like with the new film and other films like um, The uh, Boy Saw the Iceberg, dueling realities almost, which to anyone who, who animates as their job, it's already kind of hard enough, but to kind of set yourself like so much extra like consideration and thought like, okay, this has to happen now. And then that has to slow down while this happens. And, mm -hmm. and I must take a, a tremendous amount of forethought. Yeah. But that makes it very interesting to do those stories. I would never do it just a story because I, I need the money and I do, I could do little cartoons. Actually I did them, but for the fun of it, just, mm -hmm like Over the Night and Killing of an Egg. And, but those were interesting stories in the sense that, you know, experimenting with how do you do a, uh, like a chase cartoon or something. Actually, in the last film, The uh, Cat Meets Dog, I always wanted to do a, a Hollywood chase mm -hmm. with animals like cats and dogs and birds or whatever, which I'd never done before. And I, this was part of the script. Part of my idea that at least, you know, I made it more complex, of course, by mixing them up and putting four panels, <laughs> you know, all around. But, uh, but basically, it's the, the dark and the cat chasing each other. Mm. And I always wanted to do that. So I, I got my chance. 
But if I would only do that, that would be not enough for me because challenge would not be there because I can animate. I, I know how to do that, but also I'm a storyteller. So I want to see how far I can go in storytelling without being too confusing. I mean, it's all logical, you know, they all make sense to me and I hope to an audience, but they're never easy. People have to think with me to see if they can follow it. And uh, that's kind of the thing I did over the years and makes it um, interesting to me to, to make that particular film. As far as you, just from a technical perspective, I would assume that nowadays you animate digitally. I don't. You don't? Ah, okay. I don't. Well, I, I have a Cintiq to, I can do it. I mean, I'm, I'm scared of the technique. Okay. Because I always animate on paper and I, I love to draw. On, I like the material. Even the new film I'm working on right now, I have the Cintiq and I was going to use it. And the film board helped me a lot to understand how it worked and they set me up and so on. And so I brought it to France. And then when I started my new film, I just, I was scared. I, I just didn't want, I still had paper sitting here. Mm-hmm. The problem with, with paper, of course, is that you need punched paper. I'm living in a small village in the south of France somewhere. There's nothing, you know, if you run out of it, uh, any of the materials you need, you have to order it from England or from Canada or from uh, somewhere, Belgium usually. And it takes a long time and maybe they don't have it anymore. And the film board, of course, is all available. You know, it's easy. They do it to help you. But in a small village, it's different. So I thought I need a Cintiq to, to keep working. Mm. But in the end, I realized I have enough paper maybe to bring, to get me through this new production. Mm-hmm. I wanted to start, so I just started on paper. And at a certain point, I might change into the Cintiq. But I'm busy and, you know, I need time to sit back and understand the program, get used to it. And uh, especially when you get older, you want to get things done instead of waiting. And and I don't have so much time left. Who knows? You know, you. I'm excited about those films I want to make. Mm. And I want don't want to delay it too much. Mm. So I'm still doing paper, but I do... Uh, I would animate on paper, clean the drawings on paper, then scan them into the computer. So all the rest, like the camera, not the camera movements, but um, although I could, but I used that very little. But all the coloring, um, I don't know, the placing of the four panels, for instance, I would just animate right in the middle of my paper. And then at the film weight, I would position it, you know, the four panels. Right. And I would just animate each one. Mm-hmm and sometimes repeat certain things and freeze them that you can do with the film board, of course, on the computer. Mm-hmm. So I, I know how to direct my films on the computer, but I don't touch it myself. I just animate on paper and then I, and I know what I want mm-hmm. so I can explain it. And you can edit, of course, on the computer, which is, it's, I love computers for what they do. Mm. But for the animation itself, I still love to draw on paper. Yeah. We were talking to Richard Williams uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was very sort of similar-minded in the sense that, A, he wants to kind of devote as much of, you know, the rest of his working life to just producing as much animation as possible, but also mm-hmm. entirely hand-drawn, you know, pencil yeah. and paper. Oh, really? There's a certain comfort to be had, I think, in that. And certainly I am studying in the sort of digital age. I think that everyone kind of grew up with a pencil and paper. And there Mm. is something that when you, when the opportunity presents itself and you can like time allows for it. And then, then it is quite nice to just go to a light box and just sort of have that proper feel of, you know, you You can see that two different worlds. Definitely. People can do it, but I can't, you know, it's, I'm so, it's so ingrained in, you know, my style, the, the paperwork. Hmm. Are you able to talk a bit about what you're working on at the moment? Uh, it's a strange film. It's called Disgusting Sounds People Make. Okay. <laughs> it's a disgusting film. Excellent. <laughs> but it's very interesting to me. It's it's interesting in a sense also that it's kind of scatological. Uh, they're kind of short cartoons which are scatological, but they're part of a 
of another live action part or pixelation part, which is was live people but mm-hmm. being pixelated, and the cartoons just fit in there. And I tried years ago to sell that project in in Canada and North America. Uh, Canadians don't like that stuff. <laughs> uh-huh. It's catalogical stuff. You have to go to more Nordic European countries. The French actually like it too. They have terrific comics about really disgusting stuff. Mm. And the Germans and the Dutch, they love it. Yeah. I'm Dutch. That's maybe why. <laughs> <laughs> but it seemed, I think to the Canadians, it always seemed like it was all about disgusting sounds and imagery, which it's not. It's it, The story itself is quite interesting, mm. I think. And not so long ago, I had uh, we had friends from the film went over, and I had asked them to participate at a the time they were not that interested. But now, when I explained the real story behind, you know, the the storyboard, the whole scenario, they kind of said, "Well, we didn't know. <laughs> this is a great story, you know. We love to participate." So, well, too bad it's too late. <laughs> but it's the first reaction of Usually North Americans of scatological, maybe it's also Anglo. It's, it's, I'm sure you're English, I suppose. <laughs> In England, I think there's not too much of that stuff. It's more Germanic and it's more Nordic, you know, people who appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm kind of an, I'm, I'm actually British and Canadian. Oh, so uh, I may be an exception to the rule. Um, in that because I, I, you know, I can see that there's certainly a a role it has. Mm -hmm. It's great that, you know, you do have sort of circumstances where it can get made and uh, and that it will get seen. Well, it's great to be, have two nationalities. You know, Mm -hmm. I can go to Canada, I can go to Holland. Same with you going to England. Mm -hmm. It's helped me a lot. Canadians had a hard time when, you know, if they would make a film and after it's over, they would present another one and the film might, for instance, not take it. They have nowhere to go. I can go to Holland. I can go to Belgium or Europe. And they might like it or might not like it, but at least, or get a co-production because I'm Dutch, you know. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of co-productions lately. And if you're only from one country, you cannot do that. You know, it's really a privileged situation. Mm. Just by chance again, but I'm I'm very lucky to be (laughs) both Canadian and, and Dutch. Excellent. So thank you very much to Paul Dreesen. You can see more of his work at pdreesen.com. And as mentioned before, Cat Meets Dog will play at this year's International Animation Festival Hiroshima on Saturday, August 20th. Visit heroanim.org to learn more. This is the final week to get your films in to the Manchester Animation Festival. If you have a film and you'd like to enter it into our short film, our student film, or our commission film competition, you can do so. And if it is a commission film that you're entering, which does include stuff that you've done for somebody else, it could be for the internet, for television, for for cinema, for whatever it is, uh, you can enter it into our Industry Excellence Awards, uh, and we're accepting entries for writers. So if you've written something for an animation... Uh, for storyboarders, so if you've done any storyboarder animation, and for character animators. Uh, So if you're any of those guys, if you fit that description, or if you know somebody who fits that description on your team, then encourage them to enter. The deadline is the 29th of July, that's this Friday, if you're listening to the podcast as it goes out, and you can find out more information on manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. It's the last leg of July's Shorts Attack program, featuring my latest film, Throw. It's been touring Germany this past month and will screen tonight, July 27th, at the Zoom Kino in Brawl at 6pm and then again at 8pm. Also tonight at 8pm it'll be in Dresden, screening at the Program Kino Ost, and then tomorrow, July 28th, for its final stop in Hamburg at Filmraum, that's also at 8pm. For more info, visit shortsattack.com. Elsewhere in the world, the film is screening in Canada as part of Montreal's Animaze Animation Festival later in August. I don't have the specifics just yet, but visit animazefestival.com or facebook.com slash animazefestival for updates. Hope some of my fellow Canucks will be able to swing by that one. It looks like a lot of fun. And in the more immediate future, following the film's involvement in the Skepto International Film Festival, it'll be part of a festival best-of screening for Medinart, It takes place in the town of Samassi in Italy on August 5th. Visit skepto.net or facebook.com slash medinartweb 
that's of interest to any of you Italians out there. And while you're on Facebook, of course, check out facebook.com slash squigglymagazine. Give us a like and a follow, why don't you? We're also to be found on Instagram at squigglyanimation, on Twitter at squiggly, and keep checking out squiggly.com for all our latest animation outpourings. Until next time, happy animating, keep your pokeballs in the air. Thank you.